0: TheYeshiva.net I want to thank the Shul Er Chaim for bringing us all together on this day, among the many other shiurim and events and programs and videos and lectures and seminars that are going on here last night and today throughout the day, including some presentations by actual survivors of the Holocaust, which will be later in the afternoon as you could see on your signs, here in the vicinity of the Shul. I also want to thank uh, Shmueli Niyazah for uh, all the video work, for the yeshiva.net, where the videos will uh, be posted as well, and Torah Anytime and all the other websites that are uh, streaming live. I don't know all the names of them, but thank you. And welcome to everybody, and welcome to everybody who is also with us virtually I uh, got an email a few minutes ago from somebody in Yerushalayim, and I have to read it to you because it uh, caught my attention. Dear Rabbi Jacobson Schlitter, as I sit here in Yerushalayim, the phrase, I want the cake and I want to eat it too, comes to a new light my wife and I can actually sit here in Yerushalayim, eat our cake at 9.30 p.m. local time, and listen to Rabbi YY. looking forward. Okay. So, uh, signed Pinchas, who actually tunes in every day. <laughs> so, I'm going to start off with a... Uh, very famous statement of our sages. The Gemara says this at the end of Tractate Tainus, at the end of Maseches Tainus, page 29 of Choftes. Whoever mourns for Jerusalem merits and sees its joy. And obviously our sages are trying to highlight the value and the merit of Jews never forgetting, never forgetting our past, our history, our story, our narrative, our tradition, our faith, our capital, our epicenter, the Beis HaMikdash in Yerushalayim. And year after year, on Tisha B'Av, on the ninth of Av, Jews get together and mourn and grieve for the destruction in hope for its rebuilding speedily. So the Gemara says, the one who mourns for Yerushalayim merits and seizes joy. The Chassam Sofer. And I'm going to translate everything into English, not because I don't think that many of you understand everything I'm saying in the original, but because there's many types of listeners, both physically and virtually, so I want everybody to be able to understand. Seifel was one of the greatest rabbis and sages of the 19th century. 18th and 19th century passed away in the year 1839. was the rabbi of Presburg. today that's Bratislava. Then it was called Preshburg. It was in the Austria-Hungarian Empire, which was dissolved at the end of the First World War. Khsam Sofer's name was Rabbi Moshe Seifer and Moshe Schreiber. Many of the Sofers or Schreibers are his descendants. And he was the great rabbinic leader of Presburg and one of the great rabbinic leaders of his day. And in one of his sermons printed in the Russia's Khsam Sofer, in one of his presentations, he asks what seems like a very apparent grammatical flaw or challenge. And that is, the Talmud says, he who mourns for Jerusalem merits and sees its joy. You would think that it should have been written in the future tense. Kol HaMes'Abel Yiske Somebody who mourns today for Jerusalem will merit and will see its joy. Just as he or she participated in the pain of Yerushalayim, in the grief, in the mourning, they will one day merit to see The joy, the dancing, the jubilation, the celebration. The expression in English is, if you want to be with me when I land, make sure that you're with me when I take off. Don't only show up for the landing, show up for the takeoff as well. But that's not the expression of our sages in the Talmud. The expression is, whoever mourns for Jerusalem, merits, he merits and sees its joy as though That is happening presently in the time of mourning. This is the question the Chesam Seifer raises. Often people ignore such nuances, but the language of the sages in the Talmud was always meticulous, there there is always precision there, and therefore one ought to be sensitive to such nuance and ask, is there maybe a deeper message here beyond the straightforward message of the importance of not forgetting and not detaching from the story of our people. I'm going to get back to his answer. He gives a very brief and short answer, but I want to contextualize his answer within a larger context of Jewish perspective of Jewish history. So we'll get back to that at the end, at the end of the sheer, at the end of the lecture. Now I want to move on to something else. As we speak, we speak about mourning for Jerusalem, Messabla Yerushalayim. There is one chapter in Tehillim, one chapter in Psalms, which is very well known because it is said by many Jews, many Jewish communities, every Shabbos and Yom Tif, before benching, before grace after meals, it is therefore by weddings, before grace after meals, at many festive occasions, it is said before benching, and therefore it became not only a chapter in Tehillim but very much part of the fabric of Jewish life. And this is the chapter in Tehillim, chapter one twenty six, Kuf Chavav Shir Hamalos Beshuv adenoi Et Shiva Sion Hayinu this song of Tehillim, it's very short, it's very brief, it's concise. Many of us, as I said, say it constantly. Many of us even understand the translation of the words. But, as is so often the case, there are things that we say constantly, we read constantly, but we fail sometimes to tune in and to focus on the actual meaning of what is being said and allowing ourselves first to hear the questions the enigmas, the mysteries of what is being said. In parentheses, just as a little Jewish history trivia, I would add that maybe some of you know an interesting fact, and that is that when Israel was considering what should be its anthem, so there was very strong consideration that its anthem should be this chapter of Tehillim, 126 Kuv Chavav, which, think about it, would have been pretty appropriate, at least on some level, especially with the famous uh, tune and song of Chazan, Yosela, Rosenblatt, Shira ma'lo izbishuv, etc. But this option was rejected. I'm not going to get into the reasons around it. It was rejected for a different anthem. And when we think about this chapter in Tehillim, let's 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 work through it and see what he says on a literal level. Shira Malis means it's a song of ascent. Malis means steps, it's a song of going up. It's a song that's going to be sung when Hashem returns Sheva Tzioin, the captives of Tzioin, of Zion, those from Tzion who were placed into captivity, who were taken as captives, and they're going to return. And then he says, HaYinu <laughs> We were like dreamers, which apparently means that we're going to feel as though we were dreamers. Which right away one has to ask the question, what does this mean? Were we like dreamers? Are we going to say it was all a dream? Does it look like a dream? Was it really a dream? It's going to feel like a dream. What exactly does this mean? That it wasn't real? It was fake? It was like you wake up from a dream and like, wow, that was a weird, strange dream. Is that what is that is that what he's saying? And what's the source for this? And what's the point of this? Okay. Our mouths will then be filled with laughter, and our tongues will be filled with rina, with jubilation, describing a beautiful moment when all of the captives who are now redeemed, their mouths will be filled with this tremendous sense of. Joy and laughter and festivity. And as the Gemara famously says in Brachas, page 30, Talmud Brachas 30, this, In this world, one ought not to fill his mouth with laughter. It says, Then our mouths will be filled with laughter. And then suddenly he shifts to the media. What's the media going to say about it? Talk about Jews, but now we want to know what the world is going to say. You know what they're going to say then among the nations? The Gentiles, the nations are going to say, you know, God really did some great job with these people. And now he shifts back to us. It's true. God did do something great for us. It's like once the Goyim say it, now we can also say it. They wouldn't say it, well, like, I'm not sure it's such a good thing. But once we could see it, the New York Times says it. Actually, they're Jews. Uh, CNN says it, also Jews. Whatever. Uh, I don't know. The China Press, uh, the Japanese Times, uh, the Cairo Gazette. Uh, when they say, oh, Higdil Hashem Lassa you know, really, God did a great job. Now, we just repeat the same words. "Higdal Hashem Lassa Semonu, and Hayinu Smechem." At last, hainu smekam, we can be happy. Or we were happy. Ayinu actually means we were happy. What does this mean? Is it like almost now we have no choice but to say we were happy? Also, very interesting verse. If we think we're finished, suddenly he takes us into a whole new theme. We're talking about the laughter, the dancing, the celebration, the Gentiles saying God did something great. We've been happy. Shuva adeno shivisenu. Ka'afikim ba'negev. We now speak to Hashem. Return Hashem our captives. The word Shviseinu, like earlier B'Shuv, sheva Siyon, like the word Pidya Shvuyim, those who are in captivity, who need emancipation and liberty. Shuvah Hashem, Shuvah. Bring back, return as Shviseinu, our captives, those who have been exiled, those who have been in captivity. Ka'afikim ba'negev. Like Afikim in the Negev. But what are afikim in the Negev? What are these afikim in the Negev? Anybody knows what afikim means? Know what? Streams, very good. Afikim, I like you. Look in the English translation. Like streams, which means currents of water that are flowing in the Negev. But if we look throughout the entire Chumash, for the word afikim, we will not find it even once. We will find words like rivers, naharais. somebody said rivers, or brooks, we have words like Mayanos, well springs, be'eros, wells. We have words Nechalem, Nechalem. That's pretty often, right? Also rivers. We have it in the famous Shira in Parshas Chukas. Shlomah also tells us kol ha and other places. nachal even in Chumash itself. The word afikim, we don't have, it's very, very rare. We have it in Tehillim once more earlier. You remember where? Kapitol membez. Ka'ayol, taroy, Al. Afike moym ke nafshi sarog eleche lehim tzoma nafshi lelehim leelchoy masai avoy veirupnei lehim kaayal. What's an ayal? Huh? like a deer or gazelle. Tarog. You know what tarog means? Huh? it pines, it yearns, it craves. It's 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 so it's yearning for something. Sareg, it has this erga, this unique passion and quest. Al afikei mayim, this gazelle has been dehydrated, like some of us today. It hasn't had a drink of water maybe in two days or three days, and suddenly the isle finds these afike mayim. It yearns for these afike mayim, for these streams of water. That's where the word afikim is used. Kenavshi tzareg, elecha elekim, that's how I pine for you. Hashem, David HaMelech says, "Sama Nafshi, my soul is thirsty. He uses the word thirst. But if the psalmist just wanted to talk about a stream, a stream of water, why the Negev? Why kafikim Ben-Negev? Is Negev the only place where there are streams of water? Why Banegev? negev Why did he use the imagery of Negev, the Negev, the south of the Holy Land, to describe these streams of water? kafikim Ben-Negev. Okay, so we want to return like the streams of water that go in the Negev, ba Negev. Once we're talking about water, now suddenly there's somebody planting who happens to be crying. Hazairim Bedima, those who plant in tears, Berina Yiktsairu, they shall harvest in joy. One second. God, please bring us back, back home like streams flowing in the Negev. Beautiful. Now, those who plant in tears, there's somebody planting. Who was ever talking about planting? We spoke about returning, we spoke about dreamers, we spoke about God doing great things, we spoke about streams in the negative. but now somebody is planting with tears. And the one who planted in tears will harvest in joy. So perhaps this is talking about some form of exile where we're planting and we're crying and one day we harvest in joy. But he continues, Yeleich uvachai noisei There's Somebody who's walking around and he's crying. Somebody was planting and crying, but ha he keeps on walking around and crying. Who? Noisei How do you translate noisei maseh hazara? the one who carries. Zara is what? The seed. Zorim is planting. Zara is seed. What's masha hazara? We look, what is meshachazara? Anybody? Meshachazara? What's meshachazara? So if you'll we'll open an English translation, you'll see they'll translate it, the one who's carrying the bag of seeds. There's only one problem. There's no source for that. They don't know how to translate. How do you say meshachazara? What is meshachazara? We don't have such a word. When you look around in the chumash and the Tanakh, we don't have such a word. We have a word that means meshicha, limshoich. Limshach means to what? To pull, to draw. So he's carrying the pulling of seeds. That doesn't make sense. Meshach, we have today, people will say a meshach zman, like a continuation of time. So what he he carries the continuation of seeds doesn't make sense. So that's why they say he carries a pounce of seed or a bag of seeds. What's meshach hazara? He could have said noise hazara. There's somebody walking and crying. The one who's carrying the seeds is just crying. Noise meshach hazara. Okay, but boy yavivirina. Now the same guy is coming back. He's returning, and he's all happy. You know why? Now he's not carrying seeds anymore. He's carrying alumaisav. What are alumaisav? Sheaves. Alumaisav are the Hebrew term of sheaves, which means bundles of grain. When you take stalks of grain and you make bundles out of them, what are they called? They're called alumais. They're called sheaves. But the interesting thing here is, that that term, Aluma, is very rare in Chumash. Not only rare, it's only one place. It's only one place in the whole Chumash. Where? Right. Very good. In Parshas Vayeshev. That's the only place where we have the term bundles. So, we discussed We discussed, we went through the verse. And now when you read this, and I hope when you'll say this in the future, maybe even tonight, and... Uh, we think about this, Mismar. Often we don't ask these questions because it's not supposed to make sense, is it? Most people don't think that this is supposed to make sense. It's just words. And if you have Yasle Rosenblatt's song, so it's certainly nice to do it with the words. And you're getting ready to bench. And why is this supposed to make sense? But, but that is a uh, erroneous perception. Not only does it make sense, Every word is part of our divine It contains infinite significance and wisdom and empowerment and inspiration. So let's go one step deeper into the Shir Hamalos. And I do want to trace back my sources for the following explanation, (coughs) which is based on different sources that I'm going to be exploring, but particularly I want to give credit to uh, my esteemed colleague, Rabbi David, Rabbi David Foreman, from Alpha Beta, who always does a brilliant job in linguistic uh, interpretations of the Tanakh, including this particular chapter of Shir HaMalais. So I'm using a lot of what uh, fascinating ideas that he shared with some other explanations and sources beyond that. So we start from the last word. It's always good to start from the last word. al bundles, he's carrying bundles. And there's that one place that you all pointed out where bundles is discussed in Chumash with the word Alumais. And that is back in Genesis in Parshish Vayeshev, Yosef, our dear boy Joseph, is having dreams. And in his first dream that he shares with his brothers, what is the dream? You remember, We are all binding sheaves in the field. They are all collecting grain that they obviously planted and harvested, and now they're making bundles, they're making alumas. And then something happens, right? Kama alumasi My sheaf, my alumah, stands up. And it doesn't only stand up, it's erect. It's nitzava; it remains standing in full height. And what happens? And all of your bundles, all of your bundles, all your bundles turn towards mine, And they bow down, they prostrate themselves. The brothers don't take well to this dream. What do they see here as a message? (laughs) You're going to rule us. You're going to dominate us. You're going to be the king over us. If they didn't like him initially, they already despised and they couldn't speak to him peacefully. Now they only loathe him even more for the dreams. Wait till the second dream comes. So here is the man who is standing with his brother, they all have alumas, they all have bundles, his bundle is in the center, and indeed all their bundles bow down to his bundle. Hmm, If that's the case, I go back to the beginning and I say, wait, hayinu ke chalmen, right? We were like dreamers. Mm, that whole alumay story came comes from a dream. It was all in a dream. Yosef dreamt he had a chalim. Vayachlam Yosef chalim. He had a chalim. He had a dream about these sheaves, about these bundles. So I have the beginning of a chalim. I have the end about a Is it possible? Is it possible that there is some hidden, intimate reference here to a particular individual and that is somebody by the name of Yosef? I also see from here that in this dream they don't look at sheaves just as grain, because then they wouldn't get upset. Their sheaves bow down to another sheaf. They see it as a representation of people. Basically, each of their alumas represents them. And when their sheaves are bowing down to Joseph, it's them prostrating themselves to him. He is the king, which will actually happen. He is the king, they will bow down to him. This is what's bothering them. The bundle here is beyond the bundle of grain. It's represented by a person what would what, what would all of this what would all of this mean? I want to now take that strange word, kaafikim, kaafikim ba'negev. afikim, afikim. What are really afikim? Afikim are not regular rivers. They're not streams. They're not canals. They're not lakes. They're not brooks. The Tanakh has a much more common and accurate word for rivers and streams and currents of water, kaafikim. Actually, the correct translation of Afikim are only Ba'negev. They happen only in the Negev. You know what Afikim are? Afikim are what's what's called in English flash floods. You know what flash floods are? They happen in deserts. In deserts where the soil is very arid and very dry. And therefore the moist is not absorbed. And then there is some storm that releases a current of water Did you ever see it? How does the water travel through those deserts? That's not a current of water that is absorbed in the earth. So it's a very powerful flood that rushes through the desert in strong, mighty, powerful, ferocious currents. Because since the soil is so arid and so dry and not absorbing, so therefore the water just passes through it with tremendous swiftness, and intensity, and alacrity, which is why, this gazelle is not just looking to find a lake, he is yearning, for those flash floods of water, Tzama nafshi lelekim, ke nafshi sareg eleka lekim, sareg, I have this tremendous yearning, for an intense, endless current of water, ka'afikim ba'negev, what's the negev, what's the unique about the negev, anybody knows the negev, Ah? Huh? I need some participation here, I'm sorry. Ah? Huh? Dry, dry as dry can get. You can go visit the Negev and you will see. We're going to come back. <speaking> we're not just gonna come back. We're gonna come back like a fikim. <speaking> like mighty currents. Like mighty currents, by Negev. That's how we're going to come back. It's not just gonna be, you know, a calm, Cruise, a smooth, nice current of water that's flowing, like people who are paddle boating, you know, how they paddle boat. That's not how it's going to look like. Kafikim by negev, there's going to be an intense, mighty rush and flow of redemption, of emancipation, like the negev, which experiences these major flash floods. Now, the word afikim you will not find in entire Khamishakum Shatara. You could look. There's a lot of words for wells and rivers because those are big themes in Chumash. (laughs) Creation happens near a river and a lot of Sheduchim happen near wells and springs and there are rivers and there are seas. I mean, water gatherings are a major part of the story of Hamish Chum Sheter, of the five books of the Pentateuch, but not the noun Afikim. We don't have the noun for Afikim, but we have a verb that comes and is associated with the word Afikim. In one place... In Chumash, do we have a verb that is associated, not a noun, not fikim, but a verb that has the etymology of this word. Where is it? Very good, very good. Parshas Vayigash, Yosef lehisapek. Yosef cannot experience what we call ipuk, lehisapek. You'll have later in the Megillah, V'his'apak, Haman. <laughs> Yosef couldn't contain himself. Haman did contain himself, but that's a separate story. Yosef cannot be misapik. He cannot contain himself. What can't he hold back? What is he holding back? Tears. He's holding back a flood of water. He's holding back a flood of tears. He's been doing this a long time because he never showed his brothers who he really is. But now at last... Yosef can't hold back anymore. He cannot contain it inside. And what happens? He bursts out. He starts weeping. It is so loud that everybody hears it. He says, I don't want anybody here. Nobody was standing there. But when they heard Yosef cry, everybody heard it. They heard it in the house of Parai. That's how powerful those tears were ka'afikim ba'negev, like flash floods in the Negev, in the Negev desert. The sand was so dry, you don't expect water to be here. This is not a place where water flows. This is not a place where it rains. This is not a place where the earth is used to water. This is a place where the earth is dry. It's arid. It seems lifeless, numb. There's no vegetation here. There's no produce here. And therefore when the water does burst out, when the water does come forth, It unleashes its power with such intensity because it's a negative. Isn't that exactly what happens at this moment in Yosef's life? The brothers couldn't expect this. From their perception, who were they dealing with this whole time? They were dealing with a tough, dry, arid, heartless, emotionless Egyptian dictator. They are dealing with a man who doesn't even know how to cry. He has no compassion. He has no empathy. His earth, his soil is not wet. He is dry, stern. He's one tough man. They know this very well from the moment they met him. They were just innocent ten brothers who came down to get some food and bring it back to their home. And his first shalom aleichem is miraglem atem. You're a bunch of spies. You're criminals. You want to destroy Egypt. They're like, we're innocent people. We are ten brothers, we're children of one man, we are not spies. And he arrests them, he imprisons them. He tortures them to the point, he tortures them in the sense that he arrests them, he doesn't torture them, but he arrests them, to the point that they suddenly, for the first time in 20 years, feel guilty for what they did 20 years ago. They were really hurt at this moment. And then he keeps one brother in prison, sends them all home, forces them, to bring back their baby brother Binyamin, and if not, they will not get another morsel of bread in Egypt. This is not a man of empathy, a man of emotion. This is one tough tyrant who you do not want to play games with. And when they come back home, and Yaakov is devastated, he's lost Yosef, he's lost Shimon, and they're pleading with him to give them Binyamin so they could go get food. And Yaakov says, no way, I'm going to lose now a third son. But they say to Yaakov, There is no way we're getting any food for any one of us. If we don't bring back Binyamin, we will all starve to death. And Yaakov pleads with them, why did you have to tell this man that I had another son? Why? And they tell him the whole story, and ultimately Yehuda has to guarantee the son. Now, from their perception, they come back. Now everything seems fine and dandy, all is forgiven. They have a meal, they go home, only to find out, That this man somehow is accusing them of stealing his goblet. What type of heart does he have? Is there a heart? Is there a soul? This is a real desert you're dealing with. This is a real Negev. There There are no tears in this person's heart. There is no compassion. There is no empathy. And they all ultimately have to go back. And he says, your brother will remain here as a slave. And you go back to your father. Now this is from their perspective. We know better. We know that if you look through the whole Tanakh, there's nobody who cries as many times as Yosef. We never find Adam crying, Chava crying, Noach crying. I mean, Noach should have been crying a lot after that flood. Okay, he had an alternative. He said lechayim. Avraham cries only once, once at the death of Sarah. We never find Sarah crying. What about Yitzchak? We never have him crying. We have Yaakov crying. He meets Rachel, he cries. How many times does Moshe cry? We don't know, it doesn't say. We don't even know once. The Chumash records seven instances of Yosef crying. In the whole Tanakh, you don't have somebody crying so many times in the Tanakh. This is a man, a young man of deep emotion. He's always sobbing. He's always sobbing. He meets his brothers the first time, and he cries. He meets Binyamin and he cries. He hears them regretting what they did and he cries, but he makes sure that they never see it. He cries in the private, intimate chambers. Nobody sees Yosef crying. He comes out, it says. That's the first time. He contains himself. He, he dries his he cleans his face, he dries his tears, and he says, Tom, it's time to eat. He's a professional. He's a prime minister. He's running the economy of Egypt, the superpower of the time. He is not, from everybody's perspective, a mushy, lovey, dovey fellow who sees some guys from is from Canaan coming and melts away in tears. No, we know better. We know that he doesn't stop crying, but all clandestinely. But then comes a moment when he hears, when he hears from his brother Yehuda that his father Yaakov, his father Yaakov didn't stop crying for him. And that Yehuda cannot take back, go back without Binyamin, Venafshay, Shura, Venafshay, that his soul is intertwined with his soul. And when I come back and he sees that Binyamin is not here, He's going to die. Yaakov is going to die, and Yehuda says, "Ech elel aviv anarin enuiti." How do you expect me to go back to my father without this child, without Binyamin? Shura His soul is interconnected with his soul. Please, I will be a slave. I will remain here. Binyamin must go back to his father. and now Yosef cannot contain. His flood of tears. Those tears that built up in him. Those tears that nobody ever saw. <inaudible> Yosef starts sobbing and he tells them just a few words. He tells them, Ani Yosef. I am Yosef. Ha'oid avichai is my father still alive. The brothers are astounded. They could not believe that this person is their brother. And when they see his tears, they're not regular tears. What's the best way to describe those tears? Two words. Ha'afikim ba'negev. Yosef cannot contain anymore that flash flood. It comes bursting out like a negev. These are not just regular tears. You can imagine the scene after 22 years of separation. All the pain, all the mourning, all the grief, all the devastation, all the brokenness, everything that this boy went through, everything from the moment he was thrown into a pit to sold into slavery, accused of doing horrible things to Paitifah's wife, cast into a prison cell, meeting his brothers and not telling them who he is. All of it comes out in this moment. It was all hidden in his heart, but not forgotten, just hidden, hidden behind the wall. But now, the tsunami, the thunderstorm, this great tsunami unleashes its power. Ka'afik Ba'negev, he doesn't hold back that flash flood. That's that moment when he's reunited with his brother, when they see who he is. But wait, there's somebody else planting. And he's planting while he's crying. Hazorim Bedima. And if you don't think, don't think he just plants once. He's walking around crying wherever he goes with seeds. He's crying. He's just crying. Basically, he's planting seeds. You ever planted seeds? You plant here and you plant there and you walk around and you throw the seeds everywhere. Maybe a better example for 2019 is pouring salt on the snow. You don't pour salt in one place, right? You walk around, you walk around, you throw the salt. That's what farmers do. If you ever saw farming, or you are going to get into farming? You walk around, you plant seeds here and here and here and here and you hope it all grows, but at least part of it will grow. Halach, Yelich, wherever he goes, he's crying because remember, he's planting with tears. If Yosef is crying that one moment, who is the person who doesn't stop crying? Who is the person who's walking around, whose life is one continuous experience of crying? And that's, of course, his father, Yaakov. Yosef just cried now this one time, but Yaakov, the moment Yaakov saw the blood on the tunic of his beloved child, and he said, "Torayf, toraf Yosef My son was devoured by a wild beast. He did not stop sobbing. As the Torah says, "Va'yev Yaakov wept for his child, and he refused to be comforted. He told his sons, "Ared el avi biyogen, Ared Al bni I am going to go down, I'm going to go down to the Sheol, I'm going to go down to my grave in mourning, in sobbing, in grief for my child. He does not stop. Yehuda tells this to Yosef 22 years later, that Yaakov always remembers that boy that he lost, and if he hears about Binyamin now being lost, he will not be able to survive. So Yaakov is the one who's He continues to cry. But what is the what is the meaning of this? What is the reason for this? The Torah says two words. He refused to be comforted. Why? Why? People are sadly, rahmanul are struck sometimes with difficult tragedies. But Yaakov refused to be comforted. For the first time in his life, he could not make peace with this. So Rashi quotes the famous statement of our sages in the Medrash and says, There was a decree that was put into history, into the story of the world, that when somebody passes away, we grieve, we cry, we weep, we sob. We never completely get over it. But there is some form of closure that people can experience. Closure doesn't mean they forget. Closure doesn't mean everything goes back to the way it was. Closure doesn't mean they get over it. It's foolish when people sometimes come to other people in Shiva and say, oh, time, yeah, just let time heal. It's sometimes a very insensitive thing to say. Time does not make people forget. But closure doesn't mean forgetting. Closure means the ability to be able to say one chapter closes, I'm starting a new chapter, one door closed, a new door opened, one window closed, I open a new window. When I was sitting shiva for my father, there's time to get that somebody came to visit me at shiva, and he said something very insightful and very penetrating. And he said that when your parent passes away, a ditch opens up in the depth of your heart, a hole. And he says, imagine in your home, in the middle of the kitchen, in the middle of the dining room, There's a huge pit, a huge hole. And you're not, it's a sudden new hole. So every time you walk through your dining room, you fall right in. You fall right in. Every time you just fall right in. And he looked at me and he said, but as time goes on, the ditch doesn't go away. All you do is you learn to walk around the ditch. It's still there. You can see it. You notice it. You observe it. You just walk around it. He says, but not always. Once in a while you're walking and you don't realize and you fall right back there. And you get out again, and then you walk around it. It was an extremely penetrating insight, and a very true insight. When somebody says goodbye to somebody they love, and they're close with, it doesn't go away. Time doesn't heal. People don't forget. What happens is people learn to walk around the ditch, to look at the ditch, to look at the hole, to look at the cavity. Once in a while they fall into it, maybe on a yard site. Maybe a few days before Yartzeit, maybe when they see a, a picture or they hear a story or something comes up, they marry off a child and they bring a child to the chuppah without that beloved father or mother or other beloved person in the family, grandparent or whatever, close friend. And that's when they go right back into that place, to that deep pit of sadness. But there's a certain closure in the sense that a person says, now I'm going to walk around it and continue living and loving. Says Rashi, That rule exists for those who die, not for those who live. Even though Yaakov thought Yosef died, but subconsciously, there was a voice in him that told him that Yosef may not be dead, and therefore, there's no closure on somebody who didn't die. This rule doesn't exist. He can't move on. He can't walk around the ditch. He's always living with that pit in his stomach, with that deep pain in his saintly chest, because we know and on some level, he knows, maybe unconsciously, that his son never was killed. His son is alive. You know, I remember the years Sharia Baumal's body was just returned, right, for burial. After how many years? Sharia Baumul was killed in July 1982. That's 92, 02. 37, 37, 38 years later, his body was returned to his family. Sky Obama was killed at the Lebanon War in 1982. He killed at the Sultan Jacob battle. 20 soldiers were killed that day. 20 soldiers were killed. I think 30 were wounded very badly and a few went missing. And for 37, 38 years, the family didn't know what happened to him. They hoped. His father, if you remember, his father traveled the world to try to find any information about his son. His father passed away 10 years ago. But his mother was still alive when she got the call from Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu that Russia managed to obtain the body from Syria. And he was brought to burial a few weeks before Pesach this past year. There's no closure. There was no closure. Gilad Shalit's mother, you would tell her during the five years he was by Hamas, it's time for closure. There's no closure. On a mace, there is terrible sadness. But you know what happened. You know where the soul is. You know where the body is. Al <inaudible> hachai, there's no closure. So Rashi says, <inaudible> Yaakov refuse, refuses to be, to be comforted. That's the story. And now, now, I want to ask you a question. We all know that story when Yosef is down in Egypt. We now go to Yosef's perspective. He's in Egypt. And he's a slave. And he's bought by Potiphar. And Potiphar loves him. How do I know he loves him? He makes him the CEO of the company. He trusts him. He likes him. Yosef says so to his wife. Your husband put me in charge on everything besides you. I'm the man. I run this place. He doesn't even know what's happening. He knows nothing. He's on vacation in Hawaii. Or at the Delta, at the Nile Delta, sipping latte and reading the Cairo Gazette. I run this whole place. That's what he tells Potiphar's wife. Wow. So he's reached some level of success. And we know the story how Potiphar's wife does not stop trying to seduce him. Sheikh Va'imi, I want you to be with me. She begs him, and she pleads with him, and she warns with him. It says, yoyim, yoyim. It wasn't one time, it was every single day. She asked him to be with him because he was so beautiful. Yifei yifei mar. And the terrorist says one word, he refused. he refused. He refused. And you remember the note on that? You Remember the note? It's a unique rear cantillation. You have it only four times in all of Chumash. I miss four times, right? In the whole Chumash. It's a Shalshalas very interesting why the messiah tradition shows the chal I mean your boy comes to you and says ma I want ice cream but he already had six ice creams and the dentist said no ice creams so you want to tell your boy no so what does it sound like so you say you're a Jewish mother you say my malach no or my darling no or my tayara no or my ziskite no Or maybe, no. But did you ever hear a mother say, no. No. To me, that sounds like a yes. (laughs) If you would ask me, my mother would say it, I would go straight to the ice cream. Interesting no, no. (laughs) Just say no. Oh, Wow. This is a pretty festive, no, but then comes that day, that day comes and Yosef comes to do his work. Nobody's there, it's just Yosef and her. And this is the moment she seizes and she says, come lay with me. And the Gemara Maseches Saita, Lamed Rashi quotes it, quotes an argument, Rav and Shmuel, what a strange term. He came home to do his work. What type of work did he have to come home to in the middle of the day? And the famous opinion of the Talmud, and my argument, Rav and Shmuel, whether it's literal or it means something else, it's a euphemism, that Yosef, after all, surrendered. He surrendered to her quest, to her demands. And we can understand why the Gemara says in Yuma, that Potiphar's wife, Not only begged, she also threatened. She threatened, and Yiddish they say, If you don't agree positively, I will force you. She threatened him to poke out his eyes. She threatened to destroy him, to torture him, to kill him. She threatened him to imprison him for life. She did well on that. The Gemara says it was so challenging that she used to dress up In three different outfits every single day in order to appeal to Yosef. Feel bad for Pertifa's credit card. Three times a day, different outfits. You could look it up. And how old was Yosef? Yosef was 17 years old. An orphan. He had no father. His father was in Canaan. His father thought he was dead. He had no mother. She was dead since he was nine. He had no brothers. He had no sisters. They were the ones who sold him into slavery. He had not a friend in the world. He didn't have a, he didn't even have a lawyer. In America, you have a lawyer. A Jewish boy is born and his mother hires a lawyer. He didn't have a lawyer. He had no friend in the world. He was supposed to be a slave for life according to natural circumstances. He had nobody in the world. He was only 17. This is also before the Torah was given. And Petifah says, I want, P'tifra's wife says, I want five minutes from your time, and you'll be the boss. You'll have a good life, and if not, I will destroy you. So our sages say that the Yosef came home and decided to surrender. But what happens at the last moment? At the last moment, the Medrash says, the Gemara says, the Zohar says, Rashi quotes it, He saw the visage of Yaakov, his father, in the window and he fled, he ran, but of course she had his cloak, which she tore off, and she used that to prove that he was guilty, he was the culprit, he was the violator, and she throws him into prison, where he would remain for life, supposedly, but ultimately only for 12 years, only, I mean, he would stay there for 12 years, in a cell, in a boyer, in a pit, in another boyer, this is the second time he's in a boyer, remember the first time he was in a boyer? Same word, boy Boir means a sister in a pit, like a cave in the ground, but it's not a cave, it's a pit. It's a boor, it's empty. We even have in per bore Boor, Vamar, an empty person, a head that's pussed. It's empty, it's an empty cavity in the earth. He was thrown in the first time into a pit by his brothers. They took off his shirt, and they threw him into a pit. Vahaboy reik, ein it was an empty pit without water. And now, in the same exact portion, a few verses later, somebody else throws him into a pit. It's not his brothers. It's his own master. It's his new family. His new family throws him into a burr. That's how the Torah refers to the prison. Besar Surim, a prison that it calls a boy. It was some, some type of underground, subterranean structure, as Rashi and other commentators explore. But it was called a pit. It was a large pit. It was a structure. There were other prisoners there. Obviously, it was an underground structure, but it's called a boy, a pit. So that's where she throws him in. After, after all of this, I want to ask you a question. How did the rabbis know that he saw the image of Yaakov in the window? Where did they know this from? And Chumash just says, he came home. She asked him to lay with her. He ran away. Where did they know this from, that he saw the image of Yaakov? Well, you say, that's what the Medrash says. But Medrash, I always explain in a lot of classes, Medrish is not just some, you know, let's add another part to the story. Medrish is always the harmony to the story. It's the it's what harmony to a song is Medrash to the Pasek. It brings out the inner story. The Chazal were conveying an oral tradition that brings out the deeper layers of the story. How does this come into the story? He saw Yaakov. Why did he see Yaakov? Maybe he saw something else. Maybe he saw Rachel. Maybe he saw Leah. Maybe he saw Avra. Maybe he saw Yitzchak. Maybe he saw something else. D'Mus shal Yaakov. He saw an image of Yaakov in the window. B'chaloyin. He saw him in the window. How did they know this? Where did they get this from? Anybody who learned even basic Gemara Mishnah knows that one of the most important formulas of interpreting Torah is a formula, a methodology that has two words, Gzaira Shava. Gzair Shava I call today in our language today, copy-paste. Copy-paste. Gzaira Shava basically means there's one word here and the same word is employed somewhere else. We can equate the two. There is a similarity. There is a connection here. And it's not just a coincidence, there's a word here, it's the same word here. Let's think about copy-paste, I didn't mean that as a joke. In the old days, when I grew up, my father was a journalist, he had a typewriter everywhere in the house. Anybody remembers typewriters? But some of us grew up with typewriters. Something else I grew up in my house were ribbons. Because to have a typewriter, you need ribbons. We had ribbons everywhere. In every drawer, in the dishwasher, you could find ribbons. In bookcases, my father was afraid of there's going to be a third world war and he will not be able to produce his newspaper if there's no ribbons. Food, mailer, but ribbons. So I grew up with typewriters and ribbons, clack, 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 clack. What happens if you made a mistake? If you made a mistake, you had whiteout, right? You remember, whiteout, all of our shalom and you would whiteout, That page, what if you made another mistake, another mistake, another mistake, you picked up the paper, you tore it up, you threw it in the garbage, you put a new paper into the typewriter. Those days are gone. Today, nobody makes mistakes anymore. You made a mistake, you cut and paste. If you don't want to cut and paste, you copy-paste. Every word is redeemable. Every letter is salvaged. Every sentence and paragraph can be used in another instance, in another location. Now, there is deep spiritual significance of that in terms of Jewish history and our march towards redemption, but that's not our topic today. What I want to bring out today is, what if God wrote a Torah like that? It was copy-paste. He didn't rewrite it. It was copy-paste. If it's copy-paste, Gezei Rishavah actually is a real thing because it means that he took the first word and put it into the second place. It's the same word. If it's the same word, of course there is a deep connection. It's that very same word. When Yosef refuses, Potiphar's wife, the word that's used is Vayimo'en. It's not a very frequent term. It's a unique term. Vayimo'en means he refused. But when is that Vayimo'en used earlier in Chumash? Just a few verses earlier about his father. It says, He refused to be comforted. And Yosef refuses to Petit for wife. Now when it says he refused to be comforted, the Torah adds one scene. All his sons and all his daughters stand up to comfort him. They all stand up to comfort him. And we are all astounded. We never knew he had daughters. This is the first time we heard that he had daughters. We knew that he had one daughter, Dina, who certainly gave him one big headache. Suddenly he has a bunch of daughters. We never heard of them. Where were they growing up? Suddenly he's sitting shiva, and everybody came out of the closet. Twelve girls popped emerged from where? From what? From when? Rashi says, where did they come from? Were they twins? Were they daughters-in-law? Who were they? Is it possible that every shiva had a twin girl? And why here suddenly? Why don't you tell me about all these girls in the house? So the Er HaChaim gives a fascinating interpretation. Er says, cause it's relevant here. Torah is not a history book. It's about relevance. It's relevant here. This was the comfort. This was the comfort. Look at all your sons. Look at all your daughters. This is where it's relevant. Imagine the scene. It's Friday night. The boys want to start singing, and Yaakov is weeping, Yosef, 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 Yosef. So they took to turn to Yaakov, they say, Tata, Father, look around the table, you have 11 boys, you have 12 daughters, look at them, look at who they are, look at your beautiful family, Ruven, an extraordinary sensitive boy, a deep, deep kid of empathy and love. Shimen, <speaking in> a kanoi, a machiah, a zealot, a shreit, a hakt. Levi, a saint, Mamash <speaking in Hebrew> a saint, Yehuda, <speaking in Hebrew> a leader, a Talmud, Chacham, Rosh, Koyler, Rosh, Yeshiva, Rosh, Mesifta, finish <speaking> Shas eleven times, <Hebrew> a bucket, Zvulen, a businessman, Sazingen, and Sazogen. He's gonna support all the Moisdes <speaking in> Hatayr, <Hebrew> all the Moisdes <speaking in> Hayira, <Hebrew> all Bikkhil Choyler, Matzala, dinners, hospitals, Shulen, Batei Midrash time is it's all swollen don a confidential man you don't know what he's up to naftali is running marathons mamishakid shamshamaim he's been he's running marathons from here to egypt God is an entrepreneur, Baruch Marchiv God, the good, good Vilna Gon says, he was an entrepreneur, and then you have Asher, as a happy boy, he's making kiddushim and parties, and mole simcha, binyamin at hadar, a holy boy, and look at your daughters, Yaakov. Valedictorian by Yaakov, valedictorian by Shluchel, valedictorian Bnei Tsion, valedictorian Bnei Sara by Sridifke is Bruya, Akiva Medrashadis. Everyone, every what type of door you want? Krem dala krem you lach. There's one boy, Yosef. Let's face it; he was always the black sheep of the family. We knew that. Weird dreams. Busy with his hairdos. Busy with his chaloymes. He's going to take over the world. Listen, you have a family of 24 kids. You did not bet. 23 out of 24. They run the whole Orthodox community. They run everything. One boy. Statistically, you got to lose one, right? The statistics. Yaakov. You're a success story. Maybe look at the bagel instead of looking at the hole inside the bagel. Maybe look at the cup that's half full instead of the cup that's half empty. This is how they were trying to comfort him. The Torah is not telling you a story about daughters. <speaking in Hebrew> that was the nechama. That was the comfort. Look what you have. Yaakov looked at them. He thanked them. I'm sure he appreciated what they say, what they said. And then he said, Vayimayin. I'm sorry, you guys got it wrong. You think I'm just an old man who's trying to complain and be pessimistic. No, you don't understand, boys. You don't understand who Yosef is. The problem is you think he's dead. But Yosef is not dead, Yosef is alive. <laughs> I know my Yosef. You say, Torah, Torah, Yosef. I say, Torah, Torah, Yosef. But there's a deeper place. I know the story of Yosef is not over. He had a father who preserved. He remembered those dreams. I want to use this as a paradigm. I want to use it as a metaphor, like every story in Torah. It's also it obviously happened. The says in but I also want to use it as a lesson. Sometimes you have a family, a beautiful family, beautiful children. There's one child who ends up in a pit. There's that one Yosef, a beautiful kid, but he ends up in a pit. He ends up in a pit of depression, or in a pit of addiction, or in a pit of very difficult challenges within and without, and then he's sold into slavery, which represents a person who loses his independence, who loses his freedom. Isn't this the exact definition of an addict? And people sometimes come to a father or to a mother, and they say, but look at the other kinderlach. look what a beautiful family you have, it's time to forget this boy, closure. Close the door, forget him, and also don't let him come back. He's going to ruin the whole family. This is not the boy you want contact with. This is the boy you have to say goodbye to. He died, if not physically, spiritually. It's time to say Kaddish. That's what everybody could say, but not a father. A father stands up and says, My boy is not dead. My boy is alive. I will not give up on my child. I believe in my child. I know my child. I know Yosef Duroch and Duruch. I know Yosef's heart. I know Yosef's soul. I know Yosef has potentials, and I know Yosef has resources, and I know Yosef has a depth and a holiness that you're, you, his brothers, don't even understand. You never understood him. But Va'aviv Shomer es Yaakov always held on. He didn't know how the dreams will work out, but he knew that Yosef's dreams are going to take him to places that nobody else can go. And at this moment, Yaakov says, my son is not dead, my son is alive. I will never sever my cords with my child. I will never throw my child out of my house. I will never close my heart to my child. I will never ever, despite experts, say, this child has no place anymore in my family or in my heart or in my soul. My Yosef is not dead. My Yosef is alive, even if he is on a very different journey. This is what Yaakov is experiencing. And therefore, And you know what happens hundreds of miles away? You know what happens? There's a 17-year-old boy who's stuck in the quagmire of Petifar's home. And there's a woman there who's trying to convince Yosef to betray his soul, to betray his morality. And she's almost successful. It's that fateful day, nobody is home. Yosef is as vulnerable as it gets. And this is the day when she turns to him and says, Yosef, this is the day. And the chazal say, he surrendered. But at the last moment, something happened. What happened? He saw the image of Yaakov, his father. What was the image of Yaakov's father? What did he see? He felt, even if he didn't see, he felt in a window. Far away he can see a father. A father who never ever stopped believing in him. A father who never ever detached emotionally from him. A father who never ever severed the cords with him. A father who said, vayim I will refuse to say that this boy is dead. And what happens? The vayim of Yaakov empowered the vayim of Yosef. It's the same. Vayim it's the same. Vayim copy paste. Yaakov's refusal to stop believing in his child is what empowers his child never to stop believing in himself. A boy, a girl, needs a mother and a father to believe in them. That Rizal says, Yosef is called Yosayim, an orphan. Yosayim is an acronym. Yifei Toyar V'Yifei Mara. An orphan. Yifei Toyar V'Yifei Mara. That's what that Rizal says in Eitzchayim and Sharaklalim. A very strange acronym. But what happens is, Yosef knows that he has a father. He sees through the window, a father's image, and he knows that Yaakov never gave up on him. Yaakov believes in him. Yaakov knows that he's still connected. Yaakov trusts him. The word Vayimotin, what's the etymology of the word Vayimotin? Very good. Imun. emuna, Trust. What's Imun? Imun? Confidence. Trust, emuna, faith. I trust my boy. I have confidence in my boy. I believe in my boy. Vayamain of Yaakov triggers. It arouses, it inspires. Like a domino effect, the Vayimoyen of Yosef. Yosef looks at Potiphar's wife. He sees her. He sees everything about her. But through the window, through the window, he sees Yaakov. And when he sees Yaakov, what happens? He sees himself in a new way. There's a Tshinabu Levar, a Chernobyl The Muzdiyoy Knoi shel Yaakov Aviv Rabbah doesn't mean he saw the image of Yaakov in the window. The mus Knoi Yaakov means he saw his own image from the perspective of Yaakov. The Muzdiyoy Knoi, he saw his own image shel Yaakov taken from Yaakov, borrowed from Yaakov. He saw himself the way Yaakov sees him. Oh, so what's the great cantillation for the word Vayimoen? Shalshalas. What does shalshalas mean? A chain. You know why Yosef could refuse for his wife's pleadings and threats? Because the chain was not severed. Because Yaakov never said, you're a dirty, lousy ring on the chain. I'm cutting you off. You're not part of my family. You're not part of my mishpocha. You're shaming me in my community. You're harming the shidduchim of all your siblings. If not for you, my life would have been a blessing. And mommy would have had sleepful nights. Because of you. Mommy, sleepless nights. Tati, sleepless nights. You give her a heart attack. You give me a stroke. Zaidi died because of you. The eltabub is turning over in the grave because of you. You're not part of the Shalshalas. You know why Yais have had the ability of Ayyamoyim? What does the Gemara say in Psachim? Avraham... Avram had a son, Yishmal, and Yitzchak had a son, Esav. Yaakov mitoshe shlema. His bed, his family was wholesome. Wow. So everybody says, cause Yaakov hit the jackpot. <laughs> he hit the jackpot, mazel. Avram wasn't a good guy, he was a very good guy, but nishmal. Yitzchak wasn't a holy Jew, he was a very old he had an Esav. Yaakov had mazel, so Yatidashmai, ya Rachel, and Leah, Bil, and Zilpus shed a lot of tears by Lichzimene. No, and Sarah didn't, and Rivka didn't. Svasemne so says, Yaakov mitosei shlema, I'll use yeshivish language a little bit, it was not a din in the children, it was a din in Yaakov. The mitosei shlema wasn't a gedr in the shvatim, it was a gedr in Yaakov, meaning you know why Yaakov had mitosei shlema? Because he saw his family as mitosei shlema. It would have been very easy for Yaakov to look at Yosef and say, another one, another one bites the dust. Yaakov chose to see Mitasa Ishlema. He chose to see the divine perfection in every child, so he sought. How do we know this? One word when he wakes up from his dream, on his way to build a family, he dreams, he's sleeping, he dreams. First great dreamer. And when he wakes up, he has a few words to say, and that is, Achin yesh Hashem b'mokim hazeh v'anaychi. God is right here, but I did not know. I did not know. God is here, but I did not know. Yaakov's unique ability is to be able to say, Hashem is in this child. Hashem is in this place. Hashem is in this person. Hashem is in this counter. Even though, I may not fully get it. I may not be fully conscious of it. I may not figure it out. I may not be fully aware of it. But you need one condition. And this condition comes from the Holy Ponem Yafis who says, the Bala Flaw, who says in his commentary, he says, grammatically, we have a serious issue here in this Pesach. You don't say, anoichi, lo in Hebrew. Imagine in English, I don't say, "an I, I don't know, unless I'm writing a poem. But in a regular sentence, you don't say, and I, I don't know. You say, I don't know. Either say, "va'noichi loyeda" or lo'yadati. Lo'yadati means I don't know. What's anoychi lo'yadati? "And I, I don't know. And the Pan says, that's what Yaakov was saying. lo'yadati. To be able to see how God is here, it's the I that I must not know. It's the Anoichi, it's the sense of ego that obstructs my conscious ability to be able to recognize God right here. Very often you look at a certain child. He's not made out of your model. And it's my ego that tells me, (laughs) Fe! It's the I that I must stop knowing. Can I transcend my I, my ego, my expectations, the way it has to look according to my brain? And say, Can I open myself up to the divine truth in the soul of this child who is a Mima a piece of divine? Or no? I will remain stuck in my anoichi, in my egotistical expectations. And if you don't fit into those expectations, you must be rejected from my life." That was Yaakov's skill, which is why Yaakov instituted the tefillah of Myrif. Yaakov tiken Tfilas Arvis the Gemara says in the brachus in the fourth chapter, why? Meirev is the first prayer, it's the evening evening in Judaism comes before morning Avram, Meirev Yitzchak Shachris Yaakov Mencha the answer of course is Yaakov tiken Tfilas Arvis Yaakov is the one who takes night, darkness nobody sees the sun and he takes darkness and he turns it into a Tfilah Tfilah in Hebrew means connection Hatoifal Kleicheris, Naftuli Alakim Niftalti, from the darkness of Might of He creates and weaves a connection with the Riboy Nashala, not only with his son, even within himself. There are moments when you could see God in a very vivid and present way, and then there are moments where you say, It may be a moment of struggle, of strife, of difficulty, of challenge. God is here, but I don't know. But for this I have to be silent from the Anoichi. So that my eye can be sensitive to the thou. This is all Dmuzdi Yosef sees himself the way Yaakov saw him. How did Yaakov see him? My children are God's children. They're beautiful, even if each of them has different journeys. And when Yosef could see himself. From Yaakov's perspective, he could look at Potifra's wife and say, I am bigger than this, I am greater than this, I am a piece of infinity, I am a reflection of the divine in this world, he doesn't remain stuck, he runs out to see the horizon, the infinite horizon. He goes outward. That is what Yosef experiences. At that moment, vayemoin of Yaakov empowers the vayemoin of Yosef. Wow. So something happens. Yosef runs and he goes into Egypt. He's thrown into a pit. And 12 years later, he comes out and becomes Prime Minister of Egypt. And now he's feeding grain to the whole world. Alumais, the bundles of grain, he's feeding to everybody. He's in charge. And finally his brothers come and he sees them. He sees them, and he gives them grain too. He gives them bundles of grain too. And they come back, and they come back, and they're back and forth. And then comes that moment when the afikim banegev, when it's time to reveal himself, and he reveals himself, and the brothers are terrified. And what does Yosef say right away? He says, vaata al-teyatsvu, Don't get depressed. Vaal yichar abchem and don't even get, don't even get flustered. Don't get overwhelmed. Don't get dejected. And we're wondering they shouldn't get ejected. They are the perpetrators. He is the victim. He's the one who shouldn't get ejected. They should tell him, Yosef, don't worry, it will be good. Suddenly he's calming them down. They're the ones who are the perpetrators. He's the one who suffered for 22 years away from his father and family, and he's calming them down. And he explains to them. He says, "You did not sell me." Hashem sent me here in front of you, before you, to give life to you and to the whole world and to our father and to our whole family. Because there's a huge hunger. There's no alumais, there's no grain, no bundles, no sheaves, nobody can eat anything. That's the food that Yosef can provide. So I was sent down before you in order to be able to create a situation where we could save the world from famine, where we could save the family from famine, where the Jewish family could continue and not die, and the world could continue and not die. So Yosef turns to his brothers and says, don't get upset. What about he? What about Yosef? I knew there was a mission here. (speaking) So how did this happen by Yosef? How did he develop this consciousness? Yosef was thrown into a pit twice. He was thrown into a pit twice by his brothers and by Potiphar's wife. A pit. He was thrown literally into the earth. What happens when people are thrown into the earth? What happens? It represents the end. The end. But what happens when you throw a seed into the earth? What happens? Something else happens. It's not the end, it's a beginning. When a seed, a little seedling is planted into the earth, the seed doesn't say to itself, wow, look what a victim I am. I used to be on a windowsill in their home. I was beautiful. Everybody saw me. Look where I am today. The seed knows, no, 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 no. This is the moment. This is not the moment that you're being destroyed. This is the moment that you're being planted. It's a moment that's going to create new beginnings. New beginnings. There's a whole different reality going on. I was not cast into the earth, the seed says. I was not thrown into the abyss. I was planted. And when you're planted, it's just your beginning. Great things, great harvest, great alumos, great trees, delicious fruits, wonderful grain, great legumes or vegetables or all types of produce and vegetation will come from you. Yosef was sent off, sold, sent off. He was a 17-year-old boy. And what did he see himself as? He saw himself as a little seed. That's what he tells his brothers. <inaudible> Hashem planted me. And literally the word is planting. What did I produce? All this grain, all this food is for me. I'm the one who advised Parai. I'm the one who you appointed. I was literally planted by the master of the world. He transplanted me, literally uprooted me from Canaan, planted me in the land of Egypt in order, in order to rescue all and to give you life and sustenance, which is the function of what this seed does when it produces food and grain. I became that seed. But wait, is this a fair comparison? How does a seed grow? What does a seed need to grow? What does a seed need to grow? Anybody? Besides water and sun, what else? Earth. Earth. A seed needs earth. You can't grow without earth, soil. So how can be? How can Yosef be called a seed? But was Yosef put in the earth? Yosef was put in the earth. He was put in the earth twice. He was put in the earth by his brothers. He was put into earth by Potiphar's wife. He was put into earth. So now come back with me to the pasuk and to <laughs> There's somebody walking around and crying. Noise <laughs> meshe, He carries meshach hazara. Meshach, meshach, meshach. Where do I have the word meshach as a verb in chumash? Once. Where do I have it? Vayim Where does it say Vayimshchuh? Yosef. He's in the pit. Vayim they pulled him out. They pulled him out. So now Yosef could look at himself and say one of two things. I was thrown into the earth. I was cast into the ground. They wanted to bury me alive or have me killed by snakes and scorpions. That's who I am. I am a dead man walking. Or Yosef said to himself, God planted me because something extraordinary has to grow. Noisei <laughs> Meshach He carried that seed. He we'll soon see who the he is, carried that Meshach Hazara. That seed was pulled up and it was being carried. But wait! A seed can't only survive on sand, soil, and earth. What else does a seed need? Water. Where was Yosef watered? Was his seed watered? Yes. What was the water that watered his seed? Hazayrim bedima, Halach yelech uvachai noise Meshach Hazara. It was the tears of Yaakov Avinu, who refused to be comforted, which watered and irrigated and quenched the seeds of Yosef. It was the tears of Yaakov that the seed unconsciously or consciously or semi-consciously or both experienced. Deep in the seed, it felt that nurture, that love, the tears of Yaakov, who refused to stop crying because he felt that Yosef is not dead those tears, that connection, that Yaakov said, I never ever stopped thinking about you, I never stopped loving you, believing in you, praying for you, trusting you, being emotionally present for you, waiting for that bright day, I never stopped, those rains, those currents of tears, never ceased, you know what that did? He allowed the seed to felt, to feel carried. Noise means carried and uplifted. This seed that was pulled up from the pit was pulled up on a dual level. It felt carried by Yaakov Avinu, embraced by Yaakov Avinu. Yaakov Avinu who always knew, Yeishelikim ba Mokemaza wa can convey that confidence to Yosef who may have not known how it would work out. But never for a moment did Yosef feel that he was just a pink punk ball thrown around in life, cast into the earth, abused, ejected. Which is the only answer one can give to this following big question: If you were a CEO of a huge company, or you were the owner, the boss of a huge company, and you meet a seventeen-year-old boy, and you look at his resume. He was nine when his mother died. He was 17 when his brothers kidnapped him and threw him into a pit, sold him into slavery. He has not a family or friend in the world. What should be his diagnosis emotionally? And the answer, of course, is this kid is traumatized. How could it be otherwise? Would you take a traumatized boy who was thrown into a pit, sold as a slave, and turn him into the CEO of a very successful company, and go on vacation and say, you do everything. How did Yosef manage to get such a job? Of course, when you looked at him, you did not see a traumatized, broken, devastated, depressed boy. You saw a person who was filled with joy, as the Possek says, filled with grace and valor, in prison as well, even more. How did this happen? Only one way. Yosef looked at himself and he knew he cannot rewrite the script of his life, but he knew that he could answer this question. Was I cast into the earth or was I planted by God in the earth in order to create a revolution? Was I sold or was I sent? Am I just a victim to the things that happened to me or was I carefully planted in every place I went? In the first pit and the second pit. I'm not in a pit. I was planted. This doesn't mean it's easy always to be planted. Perhaps the mission I was sent on is painful. But I was planted carefully protected, that little seed was placed exactly where it has to be placed, given the exact amount of soil and oxygen and sunlight and tears and water that it needs in order to be able to become what it has to become. So when Yosef looked at his life at every point of the game, at every stage of his life, he did not see himself as a victim thrown around, cast around, buried in the abyss. How did he see himself? He saw himself as a messenger, a divine ambassador, an ambassador of love, of light, of hope, of vegetation, of produce, of alumos, of great sustenance and vitality to his family, to the world. That's how he saw himself. When you look at your own life, or you look at your children's life, you can't always rewrite your past. Who could? When you look at the life of Kal Yisrael, the history of the Jewish people, the long narrative of the Jewish people, there's a past that is often drenched with a lot of tears and a lot of blood and a lot of sacrifice. Jews were thrown into a pit more than once. And when do we remember it more than on Tisha B'Av? And if you look in your own personal life, I know there are people sitting here in this room who as children, as youngsters, have experienced profound moments and experiences of abuse. I got an email last night 11.47 p.m., I checked my email today and I saw it. And this is a boy, a young boy. He's in his early 20s. And uh, there is a collective Tisha B'Av and there's a personal Tisha B'Av. And he wrote to me about his personal Tisha B'Av. He was a boy whom I've met a few times in the past. He was comes from a very, very prominent family a very distinguished family, a very good family, good, you know, the perfect family, and very successful on many levels in the Jewish community. And he went to a very good yeshiva. And for three years, he was molested in that yeshiva, abused. And when he shared it with people on the top, they either didn't believe it or didn't respond to it the way they did and it shattered his life, so he writes to me a personal email and he writes, and I quote word for word, what I mourn on Tisha I mourn the loss of control of my body, I mourn the loss of my childhood, I mourn the loss of my teen years, I mourn the loss of joy, I mourn the loss of happiness, I mourn the loss of peace, I mourn the loss of self, I mourn the loss of trust, I mourn the loss of intimacy, I mourn the loss of relationship, I mourn the loss of freedom, I mourn the loss of love, I mourn the lack of family. His family also didn't believe what happened. I mourn the lack of support. I mourn the lack of appetite. I mourn the lack of caring. I mourn the lack of understanding. I mourn the lack of empathy. I mourn the lack of awareness. I mourn the lack of connection. I mourn the lack of touch. I mourn the loss of self-confidence. I mourn the loss of positive body image. I mourn the loss of autonomy. I mourn the loss of an inner child. I mourn the loss of a clear mind. I mourn the loss of blissfulness. I mourn the loss of trust in a community. I mourn the lack of seeing God. I mourn the lack of seeing good. I mourn the lack of seeing positive. I mourn the lack of seeing optimism. I mourn the lack of seeing hope. I mourn the lack of seeing me. I pray for the end of trauma. I pray for the end of pain. I pray for the end of loneliness. I pray for the end of sexual fears. I pray for the end of PTSD in my life, I pray for the end of my nightmares, I pray for the end of my codependency, I pray for the end of my suffering, I pray for the end of being single and alone, I pray for the completion of healing, I pray for the completion of redemption, I pray for the completion of love, I pray for the completion of happiness, I pray for the completion of family, I pray for the completion of self, I pray to God, please let me be able to love you as much as you love me. Some people may be hearing this and saying oh stop being dramatic rabbi why why and stop being dramatic whoever wrote this email but that only comes because you are clueless you are really clueless you may be thinking so how do i know you may be thinking so because once upon a time i also thought so <laughs> so i don't judge you i also thought so stop being so dramatic but he's actually not dramatic he's actually being less than dramatic because what he's describing about himself is a truth that happened to him this is what he's experiencing this is his perception of life this is his experience of tishabov and what is the psalmist telling to this young man to this young beautiful soul who at the end of all of his trauma says god allow me to love you as much as i love as you love me i know deep down that this is not the case If he wouldn't know deep down it's not the case, he wouldn't mourn. You mourn for something that you lost. If you never had it, there's nothing to mourn. It's true when anybody mourns for something. When anybody mourns for something, it means there's something to mourn for. There's something you miss. There's something that was part of you. This young man says, I mourn. You mourn for these things because they're there, because they're part of you. Somebody tried... Somebody tried to rob you from them. Somebody tried to deprive you from them. Somebody did rob you from them. But, but, here is the real, real truth. And that is, that just like by Yosef, nobody can really snuff out your true power, your true confidence, your true love, your true trust, your true infinite potential. Why? Because you are a piece of the divine, and just like Hashem ani Hashem Loy Shanisi, Vaatem Bneyakav Loy just like nobody can destroy God, nobody can destroy your invincible Khailik elekame mal. And I tell you, young man, that even though you look at yourself as a little seed, shriveled up, emaciated, lifeless, numb, dead, they took out all the sap and vitality of it. Certainly nobody nurtured it into a seed that will blossom. I tell you that you will be able to find that invincible seed that was planted. It was planted in many difficult places. It went through many, many challenges. But that seed will blossom. Great, great fruits will become a source of tremendous healing, awareness, integrity, truth, and inspiration to so many people. I just bless you that you should be able to see it as clearly as I see it. You should be able to see it in yourself as clearly as I could see it in your very delicious and moving and powerful email that you sent me on the night of Tisha B'Av Tavshanayin Tav Tess. Comes the Chsam cipher and says, ah, ah. Kol Whoever mourns for Jerusalem merits and sees his joy. How can it be that 1,900 years later, Jews are mourning for a home that's not been here for 2,000 years? As we sat last night and this morning and read four chapters of a book called "Echa Lamentations, written by Jeremiah the prophet, around 2,500 years ago. We're reading it 2,500 years ago. And Jews remember it. And learn about it. And are nostalgic about it. And the level of sincerity is not as relevant as the fact that there are millions of Jews who think about it, who pray for it, who cry for it, who talk about it. Ask the Chsam for how does such a thing happen? At some point in history, the Jewish people should have said, it's time to move on. Shuvi, Shuvi Hashulamis. The Pasuk says in Shuvi the sages say, they say, come. Try out other things. It's time to move on. Forget it. Time to close a lid. Call HaMis'Abel Yet the Jews don't forget Yerushalayim. They don't forget the Beis HaMikdash. They don't forget Mashiach. They don't forget redemption. Says the Chesam Soifer. How? And the answer is, because it's not dead. It's alive. If it would have been dead, there would be closure. But it's alive. If it's not alive physically, it's alive spiritually in the hearts and the souls and the minds of Knesset Yisrael. It's alive. The very fact that Jews mourn for Yerushalayim. Right now you're meriting to see the joy. Right now you're meriting to see something that's vibrant, that's pulsating, that lives in the history in the story in the daily life of the Jewish people, men, women and children in the Holy Land and the whole world. And therefore you know that physically it will also be rebuilt. It's already now that you see it's it's alive. There's a vitality within the Jewish world. And if you want a vivid example of the story, I'm looking at this image that I assume many of you saw last week. A woman, 104 years old, is celebrating her 104th birthday. Her name is Shoshana Ovitz. And her children say, "Ma." What would you like for your 104th birthday? And she says, I want all my descendants to come to the Kaisal Maravi to the Western Wall. And it's not an easy job, because there are, thank God, many descendants, and many live outside of Israel. But last week they managed to gather together 400 of Shoshana Ovitz's descendants, Ken Yerbu, to be together and daven together at Srid Mokay Mikdashenu, at the remnant, the last remnant of the Baisa Mikdash, the Kaisal Maravi, Ravi, for her 104th birthday. And I'm looking at the picture that the family took, and I know that there are approximately 500 descendants. But they came here, but they managed to get 400. And you look at that picture, and Shoshana is right there in the middle, sitting in a wheelchair, holding the hand of a six-year-old great-great-grandchild with beautiful curly Echrisel tapas. It's a family mostly of Vizhnitz Hasid, and the grandson who's around six years old is looking at the 104-year-old great-great-grandmother, and their eyes gaze at each other. And I have a flashback in my mind of this Shoshana just 76 years ago, or 74 years ago. She was in Auschwitz. Her father was gassed. She saw her mother snatched away by Dr. Joseph Mengele in Auschwitz-Birkenau, the infamous doctor who made his vicious, brutal, sadistic experiments on hundreds or thousands of Jewish inmates, snatched her mother away, murdered. Her entire family murdered. She survives Auschwitz alone. This Shoshana. Did you ever see the pictures of the Jewish inmates in Auschwitz on the day of liberation, January 27th, 1945, when the Soviets liberated Auschwitz? Actually, soon there'll be a lecture by uh, Rav, Schley, Rav uh, what's his name, Rav Schlesinger, right? Huh? He gave it already. Who Davin's with us in the morning, every morning was in Auschwitz. You ever saw the pictures? I have no better description Then an emaciated seed. No skin left, skeletons, Muslim, Mamish skeletons they looked like. You could see the bones. You look at a seed, a human seed, it's emaciated, it's shriveled, it's the closest thing to lifeless. And so many did die on the day of liberation. This was Shoshana. And seven and a half decades later, she has 500 descendants. And celebrating her 104th birthday, at the Koy at the Western Wall, in our eternal homeland, near the place of the Beis HaMikdash, seven and a half decades later, from a shriveled seed, a matriarch of a family of hundreds of descendants, proud Jews, breathing their history, their heritage. She came out of Auschwitz, she met her husband, who met a young man, Dov. Dov Ovitz. Dov Ovid lost a wife and four daughters in the gas chambers and crematoriums of Auschwitz. And they met and they marry and they go to Austria to look for family. They find nobody. They come illegally to Israel. They move to Haifa. She's a seamstress. He's an owner. He opens a store. She helps him in the store. They have a few children and seven and a half decades later, a whole nation surrounds her with so much love, with so much grace as this seed blossomed to the most this incredible harvest and the most incredible fruits of children, grandchildren, great-children, great-great-grandchildren in the hundreds. If that is not a miracle, what is a miracle? How did she do it? How did so many of our parents and grandparents and great-grandparents do it? How is this young man doing it? This person wrote me. How many so many of you do it in your own, in your own little Tisha or big Tisha that you experienced? How did Shoshana's shriveling seed blossom into such delicious fruit? And the answer is never for a moment did she fail to remember that she does not belong in the abyss, but that she was planted. And never for a moment did she not feel the presence of the water of the tears of her parents, her siblings, her grandparents, her great-grandparents, all the generations, which nurtured that seed and allowed it to see itself as a seed that's destined to blossom. So Shir HaMalois, when the psalmist wants to describe redemption, B'Shuv HaShem Eshiv HaSiyah, We were like dreamers. We were like dreamers. Somehow he takes us back to the story of Yosef. He wants us to remember the story of Yosef. Yosef's redemption as a paradigm, as a prototype of our redemption, but particularly a yinukah in a dream. Why a dream? The Debriskerov once said, what's the difference between a dream and reality? You know, some of us have nightmares at night. Some of you may have nightmares of being in the Holocaust some of you may have nightmares of being in other dangerous situations. And in the dream, it feels so real. It feels real. But when you wake up, you're still under the spell of the dream. You're like, Oh my God, am I alive? But five minutes later, usually it's like, oh, it's a dream. It's a dream. It's gone. But what about somebody who actually experienced abuse? I can't tell this to this person. What happened to somebody who had the trauma? What about that person who was thrown into a pit? He wakes up in the morning, he wants it to be a dream, but it's not a dream. Go tell a Holocaust survivor it was a dream, it was not a dream. I dreamt that I was in the Holocaust. I dreamt it more than once. But I wake up in the morning, I'm I'm a free man, and there's food waiting for me. But I look at another person who lived decades before me, only two mortgages, the Holocaust happened only two mortgages ago. Not a long time ago. He or she wakes up in the morning. Some of you had parents who woke up screaming in the middle of the night because it was not a dream. (laughs) What is redemption in the Jewish world? What does redemption look like? I cannot always rewrite my past. We cannot always rewrite our past. You may have been through difficult challenges that you can't get rid of. But, the power of the human soul is that you are capable of becoming a truly free human being to the point that the trauma affects you to the degree that a dream affects the person who dreamt about it. You find the courage and the infinite divine resources within yourself to be able to contextualize your trauma and pain within a story that you choose to tell. Was I cast into the abyss Or was I planted in the earth in order to bring light and sustenance to the world? What happened? I know that I was in the earth, but what is the meaning of that? Is the meaning of that, I was thrown into the abyss and I am forever a loser, a shmata, a valueless, lonely, dejected person looking for connection, looking for love, looking for happiness, looking for bliss, looking for my inner child, looking for my God. Or can I look at myself and say... The real I, the real true I, which is one with infinity, one with the divine, is not shattered, it cannot be shattered. No abuser in the world can take that away from you and therefore at this moment I'm going to operate from a place of invincibility, of complete power and confidence and strength, not because I don't know how to cry, but because I cry to the point that I can now discover an inner core that remains unshattered. <laughs> the Jewish people will emerge from exile not as a traumatized, broken, dejected people who are free but really never free. We'll be able to look at our pain. You could look at your pain and say, <laughs> of course it was real and of course it was very painful. But ultimately, it will not define me. I will define it. It will not define me. I will not remain a slave to it. I will define it. It will not put me into its context. I will put it into my context. I will put it into a context of freedom, of joy, of gu'ula, of redemption. I will define it. I won't let it define me. And how will I define it? I will define it as a springboard and as a tool. Of healing, of awareness, of communication, of maybe helping others and reaching out to others. Then our mouths will be filled with laughter. Yosef knew how to cry, but therefore he also knew how to laugh. Because he never shut off the faucet of his emotions. So we describe that day of return, when that dream that he had, that great dream, then our mouths will be able to be filled with laughter. And the nations, he was cast among the nations, like the Jews were cast among the nations. Say, Yosef changes the world, just as the role of the Jewish people who were sent into exile to change the world. And we could look at ourselves and say, Ah, that was the purpose of being planted, Hayinu Smechim, Or as the seer of Lublin, the Choyz of Lublin, once said, why? 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 And the Jews will say, You know why? Says the Holy of Because we never allowed ourselves to fall into the spear. We always held on to that core joy, to that core faith, to that core conviction. So we say, Shuva Hashem Viseinu Banegev. Hazayrim Bedima. There was plants planted with tears, but it's harvested with great joy. Yaakov, the patriarch of all the Jewish people, and then when Yaakov comes down to Egypt, what happens? He walks around, the same walking around with joy. Now he's carrying all the Alumais. which ones? The ones of Yosef, and the ones of all the brothers at last, all the sheaves, those sheaves that once bowed down to Yosef, they're now all united. There is a single family that's united. The picture was, came to a completion, to a closure. Noisei, the same one who carried the seeds, is now carrying all the bundles. Remember, the bundles are not only bundles, the bundles are also people. He's now carrying all of them together, Noisei al-Mosef. This is the image that the psalmist wanted us to envision, to understand the cycle, the transformation from exile into redemption, from planting with tears, and harvesting with joy. May it be speedily in our days already, this Tisha B'Av, Amen. Amen. Right, that's exactly the point. And I'll show you something. I forgot to say this. The Pesach says in by Vayeshev, they took Yosef they cast him into the pit into the cistern and the pit was empty it had no water ask all the commentators why is that relevant was there a vine growing in this pit that was searching for water was there a field or a farm or an orchard here why is it relevant that there was no water but now we can understand, because if Yosef is really compared to the seed, No Mashal Khazara, Hazo and Bedimev, he is that seed that was planted by the Rebanhal oil and was planted by God. Carefully in the place where it has to be, in order for it to be able to produce and blossom the way it's supposed to blossom. There's one issue here. A seed needs not only earth. A seed, a seed also needs water. But came by If Yosef is being planted, there's no water. Ah, that's what we say. Yaakov's tears. Yaakov's incessant weeping and hoping and praying and connecting to Yosef. Nurture that seed and made sure it didn't just shrivel and emaciate, but ultimately becomes the the extraordinary powerful source of, of nourishment and food and nutrition and nurture to save the whole world. It's interesting the haftira of Parsha Shmois, which is the the Parsha of golos is from Yeshaya and and the Jews Ended up in Galos Mitzrayim because of Yosef. Because Yosef ended up in Galos Mitzrayim. So the way the Haftarah begins is, Exactly the same thing. Exactly the same theme. They come down to Mitzrayim and it's called Yashresh Yaakov. They take root. They're planted and develop roots in the land. And ultimately, Yotzitz Afarach Yisrael from Yaakov. Who is a seed, it becomes Yisrael, which blossoms and grows. And the whole world is filled with Tnuva, with the produce. That's why the Pazak says, in Uzrati HaLiba aretz. So the whole theme of Jewish history of Golos and Gula is the planting, the Hazarim Bedima, which creates the berinik Zairo. Right. You got it. That's the summation of all of it. Sometimes you find yourself in a difficult and challenging place. You think you have been buried but actually you have been planted you got it this class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net please help us continue the classes make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net/donate